Welcome to the Educause Integrative CIO Podcast. I'm Jack Seuss, Vice President of IT and CIO at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. And I'm Cynthia Golden, Associate Provost at the University of Pittsburgh. Each episode, we welcome a guest from in or around higher education technology as we talk about repositioning or reinforcing the role of IT leadership as an integral strategic partner in support of the institutional mission. Today, we are really pleased to have with us David Lassner. David is the 15th president of the University of Hawaii. And in that capacity, he simultaneously leads the 10 Campus UH system, which is the state's sole provider of public post-secondary education. And he leads Hawaii's flagship research university, UH Manoa. David has a long history with Educause that he will tell us about in his introduction. And also joining us is Garrett T. Yoshima. Garrett is the Vice President of Information Technology and Chief Information Officer. He's actively represented the University of Hawaii in state and national venues as a member of Educause, Internet2, and the Association for College and University Technology Advancement. Garrett has spent many years in government and private sector before coming to the University of Hawaii CIO role. So, David, why don't you start by introducing yourself to our audience? Okay. Aloha, audience. I have been at the University of Hawaii about 45 years, all except the last nine in technology roles from entry-level contractor, staff member, user support, manager, into executive roles and eventually becoming the first chief information officer, first VP for IT. And then a little over nine years ago, I took an unusual career twist and became president. During my years in IT, I was active locally, nationally, and internationally with Educause. I chaired a couple of committees, moved on conference committees. I was on the board, actually chaired the board, I was on the uh, faculty of the Educause Management Institute and the counterpart serving Australia and New Zealand with Caudit, their management institute. But I was also involved in uh, Internet 2, did time on the board there, chaired a council and some committees. I was active in WICHI's, the WICHI, what is now called the WICHI Cooperative for Educational Technologies, pretty active, uh, helped co-found the Kuali Foundation. Uh, working in administrative software and community source, and then a number of global organizations, some here and some beyond, Pacific Telecommunications Council, APAN, and things locally, you know, if you're in a small place, I was on the board of Hawaii Public Television, I chaired a, a Hawaii Broadband Task Force, and Hawaii High Technology Development Corporation, so... That's probably enough. (laughs) (laughs) So, Garrett, could you introduce yourself and talk about what led you to the CIO position at the University of Hawaii? Thanks, Jack. Appreciate it. So, as an engineer by training, so double E, in those years, which was 44 years ago, almost as long as David, there was no such thing as computer engineering. There was no such thing as software engineering. It was called something completely different. Mm -hmm. So, I, I stuck a 
what amounted to a computer engineering curriculum into a doubling program, which was um, super interesting at the time. And I thought, you know, why not? I, you know, in those days, you paid a flat fee for four years of education, or actually, in my case, three and a half years of education, and and we got what we could out of the program, including a bunch of time on the pre-PC platform chips, the stuff that Bell Labs was working on um, in the Unix operating system environment at a time when the introduction to Unix was uh, a sheaf of Xerox paper, actually mimeographed at the point <laughs> of papers with uh, with Dennis Ritchie's name on the front of it. So it was, it was uh, quite an interesting career over a long period of time. Um, I would actually call it a fairly twisted path leading to a number of different both job opportunities as well as institutions and companies that I worked for the number of years, probably a dozen or so different companies over a, a number of different job opportunities that span software, that span network engineering, um, some different types of sales and marketing opportunities, consulting opportunities, at least four different gigs as CIO or CIO equivalent, uh, mm-hmm. finally moving to the position here at the university. And I will say I work for and I'm not trying to kiss up to my boss just because he's on this podcast, but work for the best boss twice. Um, interestingly <laughs> enough, the first time I left the university was one of the uh, saddest job changes I had to make. And interestingly enough, I made it to be able to pay for some private university tuition someplace else in the country, not naming Southern California as the place that we had to send our money to. <laughs> But fortunately, ended up coming back to university as the CIO position opened up here at the University of Hawaii and um, you know, currently enjoying the gig here and hopefully with at least a few more years to, to be able to contribute to the industry. Well, it's great to hear about both of your backgrounds. And David, we're, we're happy to have you here today because one of the things we wanted to talk about is the fact that you're one of the very few IT leaders who's gone on to serve as a university president. And I'm sure that our listeners would really like to hear about your journey. You, you talked about how you've really been part of the IT community. And do you want to talk a little bit about your move to the president's office? I I think people sure. would be interested in knowing some of the experiences you had in the IT roles and how they prepared you and maybe what where you might have wanted you know, more preparation. Okay, so the short version of the story, I was a very happy vice president for IT and CIO. This is 2013. By then, the position had been institutionalized at most research universities, had something equivalent. I was part of the president's cabinet. President uh, announced she was stepping down. Uh, The Board of Regents decided they wanted to spend about a year you know, figuring out what they wanted in the next president and doing a search. So they were looking for somebody who would be interim while they did the search after the my predecessor stepped down. And so I got a call along with a couple other vice presidents and I think some others asking if I was interested in being interim president for perhaps a year. True story, I told them I was my third choice. <laughs> um, And uh, anyway, they picked me. So I started doing the job. They started the search and probably six or so months later, they said, oh, can we consider you for the the non-interim position? I said, oh, well, I said I wasn't going to apply. 
they said, well, you don't have to apply, but can we consider you? And uh, three or four months later, they took the interim off and here I am. <laughs> so I had never really wanted to be a president. I really liked my <laughs> my IT job. Uh, mm -hmm. I've joked my salary went up, but my hourly rate went down. <laughs> um, the three things I'd say that I knew the least about as a CIO that have turned out to be um, really important as a president, one was high-end fundraising. It's not something that CIOs typically um, right. get really involved in other than with some IT-specific gifts. Um, a second one is real estate. Most universities own land and are trying to figure out what to do with it whether it's maximize revenue or understand public-private partnerships, things like that. And the third one is intercollegiate athletics. And I won't <laughs> say anything else about that. <laughs> so Garrett, you have the unique situation of working for your predecessor. How has that helped in making this transition to higher education play out? The transition has been pretty interesting. And I will say that one of the First, either questions or comments that I got first stepping into the CIO role was, wow, isn't it scary to have a boss that was in your job before? Mm -hmm. and I would say without some of the other career collisions, if you will, that happened previous to stepping into the job, it might be to have a job that you're current boss did for a very long period of time, did very well at for a very long period of time, and then now has ascended to the role of the president of the institution and has all these other responsibilities, plus having the ability to, in some cases, maybe second guess, maybe um, know more about what you know when you're doing the job. I have to say, though, that and uh, the part of my twisted career that we talked about previously, I did have the opportunity to work with David on a number of different occasions, first and foremost as a member of the community that works with the university, and additionally as a consultant working for David in his role as CIO, then as one of his directors while he was still in the CIO role. So you can see a pattern evolving. Mm -hmm. You can see the, uh, the ability to have been brought up to speed in the higher education environment over a number of different roles and a number of different years that I think some other folks wouldn't have the benefit of being able to come into a job with having that previous history there. So that long history has, in fact, made the transition for me relatively easy, I would say, going into the role, not saying that I didn't have to learn a lot of stuff after I got here because I did mm -hmm. and I still do. It's a fantastic learning opportunity. But really having the long number of years, almost as a slow ramp into the CIO role has been a really good learning experience for me. And again, I still have the opportunity to learn a lot more, some of which includes participation, not just at a state level, but at a, at a regional, at a national, at an international level that I have the benefit of riding the coattails of David throughout this entire process because of his long history in the, in the role of CIO. I'll add, I, I didn't know how I would do giving up a job that I had sort of worked toward and literally created, you know, over 30 years 
30 plus years, it turned out to be really easy. I'll just say that IT is one of the things I worry about the least in my current job. I enjoy catching up with Garrett and talking with them and then going on to whatever's burning fires I have. So one of the good strategies in this particular relationship is that we can take the opportunity every once in a while to interrupt the president's calendar to give him some geek therapy. To make sure he still kind of gets the opportunity to enjoy some of the things that he's always enjoyed to do. It sounds like this relationship has been terrific. So just a quick follow-up for both of you. I had the opportunity to work with reporting to Dr. Rabowski for 20 years uh, at my institution. And I would say that more than half of the time when we were meeting, we were never talking about IT. We were talking about whatever is going on in the president's life, which is always changing. And I'm just sort mm-hmm. of curious, David, are, are you and Garrett often talking about things outside of IT um, and looking at him as an informal advisor like you do others, I'm sure, around the university? Or are you mostly staying within the IT sector when you're meeting with Garrett on things? I'm going to say both. Yeah, yeah. I, I know we'll get into this in a bit, but I think one of the messages for IT leaders who want to be more involved in the institution is they need to understand everything that's going on. And I think the reason that the Board of Regents asked me to stay on and do this job is that over my years at the university, I had been involved in injecting IT into everything we do. So mm-hmm. helping start the first distance learning program at the beginnings of online learning, replacing all of the administrative systems at least once, if not <laughs> twice. I don't think any of them three times yet. Probably um, wireless networking. Wireless, you know, the beginnings of wireless. Yep. You know, making the decision that TCP IP was going to replace all of those other SNA, DECnet, and Apple Talk things oh, yeah. we all fooled around with. But I think a lot of it was more the permeating into the institution and around research and the importance of technology and research through work with Internet to high performance computing and other things that I had a pretty good insight into all the parts of the university, except some of those things that we hadn't really injected IT into in a significant way. And I think I benefit from that. Uh, with Garrett and our other vice presidents who have insights from what they know, you know, finance, HR, administration, construction, legal affairs, all of that helps shape me in understanding my job. And the more they know about what I'm doing, the more they can help the university. Perfect. So we thought we might frame some of the rest of this conversation around the EDUCAUSE top 10 issues, top 10 IT issues for 2023. And um, the way EDUCAUSE is talking about this, they've grouped the top 10 issues into three foundational models. So the first one is about leadership, and they, they call it leading with wisdom. The second one about data or the ultra-intelligent institution. And the third one about work and learning, which is everything is anywhere. And the idea, I think, of everything is anywhere that forms the foundation models really acknowledges the effect of the pandemic. 
And so campuses now consist of both physical and digital entities and, and teaching and working are happening in classrooms and in dorm rooms and in offices and in conference rooms and in people's houses. And institutional data is stored and transmitted and accessed on campus computers, home computers, you know, portable devices, cloud servers. So essentially, we're seeing this idea that everything can be anywhere. And that's a little bit of what, what we wanted to talk about. Jack? Yeah, no, David, I, I think you mentioned it earlier, but as someone that was faculty and you taught in different modalities, um, how does everything is anywhere align with your strategic vision of the University of Hawaii? Well, I'll say the pandemic really did change, I think, everyone's understanding of what can be done. And I think what we now have is a period of settling into knowing what can be done, what should be done. And to my mind, what is really important is that we not believe that any one approach is the best solution in all cases. So let's just say um, online learning. You know, I've been doing online learning a really long time. That's what got me started in IT was working on an old computer system called Plato one of the first uh, computer-based education systems mm -hmm. worked in the lab at Illinois when I was a student there. And, you know, so now we get this, oh, we made it through the pandemic. Everything should be online, you know, and, and leaving aside the very obvious reality, which I think anybody in the business knows, which is that what we did for the pandemic to pivot to Zoom was not really online learning. It was like emergency remote learning. But we also know that even the best online designs aren't the solution for everything. So campuses aren't going to go away, but they will be doing different things. And we'll be able to do a lot more online than we used to. And now we have the chance to be thoughtful about, you know, returning adults, people who are place bound, people who are time bound certain kinds of students that really do benefit mm -hmm. from um, really creative, highly interactive online learning, absolutely, let's go for it 100%. But there are a bunch of kids who are coming out of high school at age 18 who aren't ready for that, for whom um, a college experience is really part of growing up. And I think campuses will be there for that. Uh, same story when it comes to work. You know, a lot of people thrived working from home. They don't want to come back to the office. And we had plenty of people who did not. There's all kinds of reasons to not work from home. You could have a crowded multi-generational household. You might not have adequate broadband. Yay, everybody in the world knows broadband is essential. Finally, mm -hmm. um, you might not have the right devices. You might have too many people trying to share broadband connection and devices. There are certain kinds of work that can't be done from home. So now how do we take all that we have learned, figure out how to move forward, and most importantly, keep learning? Because we don't know the answers yet to when we should be and must be working from home, when we should be and must be learning from remote locations, whether home or workplace or something else. And it's a really exciting time I did a local public access TV show called Silver Linings, and we talked about the silver linings of the pandemic and the opportunities for everyone to understand 
uh, the possibilities for a future that's different than our pre-pandemic past. Well, and there have been some great conversations going on on campuses about all of that. Garrett, what do you think the impacts have been for you from a technology standpoint? It's definitely something that keeps us on our toes. The interesting things about technology in general in this space is the pandemic in particular required us to be amazingly agile and responsive. Yeah. I think we've been, you know, lucky, absolutely lucky to have the right kind of resources and and people in particular to be able to to respond when we had to respond. I will not, you know, make up something that said we were ready for this and we knew we had to do something at some point in time and we just executed. No, that's not what happened. Not even close to what happened. There was a, an amazing response from staff, from our vendors, from our community at large to make the agility, to make the response happen in a timely manner, in a way that we could support the changing needs of the institution over a relatively short period of time. And now, as David indicated, we now see not necessarily a snap back to what was before. It's not, we'll go back to the way we used to do it three years ago and just go merrily on our way. No, it's never going to be like that anymore. And in fact, the result for us has been is the, the need to continually be agile and responsive. So this is the trick. Try to anticipate what some of those needs might be on a going forward basis so that the technology infrastructure and organization can respond when the, when the needs come up. Mm-hmm. Does that mean we'll be able to handle any permutation of the different things and, and different styles and different learning styles, different work styles that are in, in our future? Absolutely not. We'll, we'll do the best that we can and we'll be, I think we'll be able to respond to 70, 80, 90% of what we need to do. And the perception might be, well, we're pretty close to 100%, but we are scrambling. And I think that's going to be the way things are for, in particular, for technology organizations on, on a going forward basis, because people have gotten used to the idea that the stuff just mostly just works. For those of us behind the scenes, we know there's a lot of effort to go into just works. I've always said, if we do our job really, really well, we'll be invisible. We'll be, the technology will be invisible to the institution and the learning environment and the work environment. The realities are that we're not quite invisible but we have to mm-hmm. make sure that we're as close to that as possible. So if you go back to the some of the old plays and the old uh, live concert presenters, all the individuals running around this running around the stage dressed in black and trying to mm-hmm. hide behind the shadows. That's the technology organization in many cases. And the the need to really be responsive and not get in the way of the business of the institution. I think is critically important for us going forward. Uh, it, it's challenging, absolutely. Is it does it require some new skills? Absolutely. And we will continue to learn with the rest of the organization. So the second model is the ultra intelligent institution, working with data and analytics to aspire to provide institutional decision makers with ongoing, useful, and increasingly sophisticated insights. So, David, how does this theme of ultra intelligent 
institution align with your strategic goals? And how is Hawaii using technology and data to improve student success and advance the mission of the institution? We look at our student data pretty carefully around, you know, the standard metrics, you know, graduation rates, retention rates. We're pushing down now, I think, an area we're much more interested in is pushing it down to faculty. So we think we understand at the institutional level what kinds of things we need to do and how to measure whether or not we are successful. But we're doing a lot of work now around course level data, instructor level data. And in particular, we like, you know, most institutions now have a, we're pretty committed to an equity agenda that looks at what are the the gaps in student outcomes for various populations. For us, we always look at Native Hawaiians. That's our indigenous community here. Pacific Islanders tend to not do well. Uh, We're looking at our Filipino students. We're looking at our Pell eligible students for economically disadvantaged uh, marker. We're looking at our first gen students. We're looking at our rural students. So we want to understand what do we have to do to help them succeed because they tend not to have outcomes that are matching the rest of our population. And some of that is about programs. And I think most of us have a center for the success of X students, where X is whatever equity group a particular campus is looking at, African-American, Black, uh, Hispanic. American Indian, however you look at those. But I think we also need to look into our teaching to understand how our teaching needs to be responsive to the needs of student populations. And that's been super interesting, um, working with some organizations that I hadn't worked with before, like AQ, which focuses on teaching and, and helping faculty teach in responsive manners. We've done a lot of work at Pitt on equitable and inclusive teaching. Um, in the past few years. And it has really, I think, had an impact. And you have to have the data to understand, you know, what are the gaps in what disciplines and in what kinds Mm -hmm. of specific courses, maybe down to the instructor level. And then you have to be able to parse it down to know your student body and be able to track them as well. I think a lot of the rest of what we do is similar to you know, most other kinds of institutions. The student success agenda, when I was on the EDUCAUSE board and I would talk about things like the completion agenda, you know, so this is say 10, more than 10 years ago, this was not an agenda that most of my CIO colleagues were really engaged with at their institutions. And I think that's part of, you know, again, what helped me end up in this position was my engagement as a CIO mm-hmm. with the total university agenda, not just the things that were commonly thought of as the CIO's agenda or the technology agenda. And I was just curious about all these things. And I had colleagues and mentors who invited me in to help them participate. So Garrett, One thing that usually is part of the CIO's agenda is cybersecurity and privacy, which are always sort of front and center for every CIO. I know you have a wonderful uh, chief information security officer in Jody Ito. 
As CIO, how are you working with your CISO to protect your community, recognizing that no one's immune from attacks? So first and foremost, every single CIO should listen to everything their CISO tells them and say, yes, ma'am, yes, sir. <laughs> what else do you need for me to do so you can do your job? And also, uh, critically important for us, Jody's not going anywhere. We held her captive. We put chains around her wrists and ankles, and she's not allowed to take phone calls from anyone, period. <laughs> so, some of that joking aside, and it's not all joking, by the way, it, it's really absolutely critical to make sure that the institution makes the necessary investments. The resources are not endless and they're, they're not bottomless. So the, it's very important to, to make sure that we make the right decisions on investment choices, that we make the right decisions on outreach and educating the institution all of the institutions, students, faculty, staff, researchers, our partners, our vendors, to make sure that everybody is on board with the cybersecurity, um, the program, the initiatives, and the requirements of the space. Requirements are getting, they're literally getting piled on us all over the place uh, from a statutory compliance point of view. And then from a threat perspective, we face a number of, of challenges that if you roll the clock back even 10 years, that nobody ever thought we would have to deal with this level of threat and, and potential harm to the institution that, that we have to deal with on a regular basis now. Just like the rest of the technology workforce, so if, if things are going really, really well in cybersecurity, you also don't hear about us at all. <laughs> there, there's, it's something that it, it's just... You don't, you don't want to be the latest news article or the, the current news announcement or the, the latest exposure announcement. You want to be ahead of that as much as you can. It's really hard to stay ahead of all of it, by the way, and really make the right investments from the standpoint of the institution, not just in dollars, but also in people and making sure that the CISO has the voice that she needs to have to make the job work. We are absolutely blessed to have Jody as our CISO here. She's not only highly valued at the institution, but also on a state and regional and international basis. So we're, we're also benefiting from the reach that our CISO has to talk to other communities and to bring together resources from outside the state to make sure that we can really help to, to put our best defenses forward and really have the opportunity to continue to operate in an environment that is reasonably safe, reasonably sound, and absolutely diligent to make sure that we're, we're eyes open, ears open, and can see the threats coming as best we can. So David, in, in regard to all of this, um, as president, your actions really help to I think both spotlight what's important and to set a tone for what is expected of the community. What kinds of things do you do to highlight the importance of cybersecurity and privacy for everyone? So it's interesting as I was listening to Garrett. So Jody, who I know some of your listeners will know because she's very visible nationally in security circles. She This is the only place she's worked since she was a student help. When I first came to mm -hmm. work here, she was an undergraduate. And then she got full-time staff positions, 
And it was before we had security people, right? It wasn't a job in the 70s and early 80s. And I found myself in a situation, this was my very early days as CIO. And I was like many of us creating the organizations, you know, of merging academic and administrative computing as we used to call those things. And Jody was in a role that she wasn't enjoying much, but she had a lot of interest in security. And I just said, what the heck? Why don't you be in charge of security? <laughs> and she's she's never left that role. So sometimes you, you just get it right. But Garrett has taken it much farther, I would say, in terms of the complexities of what we have to do and the number of people, the number of tools. So for me, I have to do what Garrett said, which is... <laughs> When Garrett or Jody say to me, we need to do X, I say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. And we can't really make it about the money, that the cost of not investing in security right. far exceed the cost of almost any investment any reasonable CIO or CISO will ask for. Uh, but I also have to stand both internally and externally and really articulate the importance of privacy of personal information, explain to people, you know, an angry parent. It's interesting because now I get it less on the technology side and more on the privacy side mm -hmm. that when a parent calls and is angry, I have to say, sorry, I can't talk to you about your student. Her information is protected by FERPA, even from you. Bring us a waiver or sorry. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's that kind of thing that it really literally presidents have to say that stuff sometimes when you get uh, sufficiently angry people or when we have to impose some new restriction or inconvenient process for security. President's got to be their lockstep with the CIO and the CISO to explain to angry faculty, angry administrators, angry staff why you can't just do anything you want to as easily as you can shop on Amazon. So one of the things we wanted to talk about is the foundational model of leading with wisdom. You know, our title of this podcast is The Integrative CIO, and it strives to share insights on how others are doing this, leading with wisdom. And I can't think of two better examples than the two of you. So David, as president, how are you and your leadership team helping to shape the institutional culture to make University of Hope Hawaii a place that people want to be? And where that takes hold in the pandemic, how do you hope to keep it moving forward post-pandemic? So it's very easy for people inside universities to get very focused on me whoever me is, and that's whether it's faculty or a student or a parent or a staff member or an administrator, you know, in a silo. And I think for me, the biggest insight, and it was really amplified after the pandemic, but I, you know, I understood this before, I think, but I didn't say it as much, is sorry, it is not about you. It is about our students, and we're a public university. We are the sole provider of public higher education in our state, including community colleges. So we have to do everything that this state needs. And if you're not signed up for that, you might not be a good fit 
for this institution, because that's what we will fall back to is what is this going to mean for helping our students succeed? And what does this mean for helping our communities succeed? And that is inclusive of, you know, our a research mission that is grounded very much in what our state needs and what are our competitive advantages as a state. You know, obviously oceans, astronomy, atmospheric sciences, conservation, mm -hmm. conservation biology, uh, evolutionary biology. These are all things that we have really an unfair competitive advantage over many other places and we better get good at it to help drive our economy. And I think the pandemic helped us, besides seeing what we had to do for our students, we understood what a fragile economy we had. We went from the lowest unemployment rate in the country to the highest unemployment rate in the country. And maybe first or second and 49th, 50th, but you get the idea. Mm -hmm. When tourism shut down, we lost our biggest economic sector. And this time, I think maybe for the first time since I've been here, we seem serious as a community uh, and as a state in talking about how will we diversify our mm -hmm. economy so that we're not so dependent on something that is so out of our control. And so I think the wisdom is about outcomes and thinking about others and what we have to do for others. And so, Garrett, you talked earlier about one of the lessons of the pandemic being that we have to evolve and adapt. And one of the consequences of not doing that is losing talent. What kinds of workplace initiatives do you think are important to future success in this area? Really good question. And the, the loss of talent, I would say we were already facing it pre-pandemic. Mm -hmm. And it has simply been magnified a couple of degrees as we've gone through the pandemic. Silver linings. The great mm -hmm. thing about the pandemic and having everybody in the same boat, literally, is that in particular for the where we seek talent and where we have concerns over losing talent, it is exactly the same position that every other and I'll speak to technology organizations that every other technology organization is sitting in. We're equally desperate. We're yeah. all facing similar a similar situation. Hawaii is, uh, I think would be fair to classify as a mid-market style economy or sized economy where we cannot directly compete with the tech hubs that are sitting on the West Coast or across the nation for that matter. So San Francisco, LA, Seattle, uh, Chicago, Atlanta, Austin, New York City. There's just not a way for us to directly compete head to head in those spaces. So what mm -hmm. we have to do is compete in a way that does two things. We're looking at making sure we create, we enlarge and we deepen the candidate pool. So it's all about workforce development. We get more people into the pipeline that are qualified in the pipeline because we know we're gonna lose some of them along the way. As, as a public university, we know we're gonna lose some of our best and brightest to the sparkly things that the private industry can often dangle in front of them. Hopefully we'll get them back at some point. But the important thing for us is to make sure that we create a pool that's totally viable to support our local industries and our university, our own university, so that we can have and we can grow the talent 
over some period of time. This is a long-run strategy. This isn't something that will fix our immediate vacancy needs today, tomorrow, next year, even the year after that. But it is a long-term strategy, long-run strategy that I think we have now in common with all of our employers across the Hawaii community, at least, Mm -hmm. such that we can all invest together to make sure that we can have that talent pool to draw on. From the standpoint of an employer, we also have to make sure we make that investment in our management and executive staff. So we understand how to nurture and develop and manage this workforce that is changing right in front of us. This Mm -hmm. is not something that you can manage with 19th or 18th century principles and skills. You have to roll it forward and you have to be able to, to figure out how to deal with the folks that are coming out of college now, the folks that are re-entering the employment marketplace, and try and figure out how we're going to deal with and manage effectively a set of technologists and engineers and personnel that maybe are not all sitting in rows of cables in front of us that we can see showed up to work at 7.30 or 7.45 mm-hmm. and work until 4.30 or 5 o'clock but really be able to manage based on on work output, on outcomes, on measures that we can see without seeing them in front of us, a totally different environment than maybe some of the previous generations have grown up in. So lots of changes along the way, and we have to be able to respond to those changes. So David, when you were a CIO, for me, you were sort of a model for what I didn't know at the time would be called the integrative CIO. Um, you know, you were a person that between your work at Hawaii, but also your national and international, you were bringing together people and you were finding ways to do things that were interesting. I'm curious, do you like the term integrative CIO? And how do you think it relates to this idea of leading with wisdom? Yeah, I, I do like the term. And I think it's the thing that's interesting about it is it it's integrative. I think about it within the institution. So I, as I mentioned, I always try to make sure I understood what was going on, best practices nationally or wherever, around you know the key areas that we talk about: teaching and learning, administration, research, networking. You know, those were all really important to everything that the institution asked had to do. But it was also integrative as I kind of grew up in my job in the community in these different organizations that offered me different opportunities to see how do I engage with other people to try to solve problems. Because I remember the day I was frustrated over a major ERP project that had not succeeded. And I wrote to a few people in the community, inclusive of Educause, and I said, you know what? If we got a hundred institutions to put in a hundred thousand dollars, we could all just write an ERP and be done with these darn vendors. So my my mindset was integrative about collaboration, I think going back many, many years as well. And I still believe whatever job any of us are in, you know, those opportunities for uh, networking, collaboration, and taking that to integration, to doing things together, 
are really interesting. I had a um, I had a boss who was a challenge for me, and when we were working on a student information system project one time, he said to me, "Why can't we just have one student information system for the whole country?" And you know, my first thought was, "Oh my God, this guy doesn't understand <laughs> anything." And now I think about it, and I think, "Huh, what hmm. an interesting idea." <laughs> What an interesting idea. <laughs> so, David, as president, we will give you the last word. Um, any final comments, anything you want to say to our audience? Well, I mentioned earlier, I didn't really aspire to this role, but I know that there are people who do. And so what I would say is take advantage of every opportunity you have to learn everything you can about everything the university does, uh, make friends everywhere because you will need them uh, to be able to succeed and help other people succeed and they will, will support you. And for these niche areas that most CIOs don't get involved in, lots of us sit in the room. So the, the first challenge, and I remember being around with Jack a lot, and the question is, are you in the room? you know, sort of the Hamiltonian question. And, you know, if you're not in the cabinet, it's really hard to understand what's really going on. And finding your way there is probably really important. Well, thank you both. This has been fabulous. Um, we really appreciate you taking the time. And we look forward to watching what you two both continue to do out in Hawaii. Absolutely. Thank Aloha. You. Aloha. Aloha. <laughs> Thank you.